The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. I've just been talking with my next guest here, Terry Prone. We've discovered with someone in common, a Miss Joey Roach Burke, who taught me elocution when I was in O'Connell schools all those years ago. Oh, Miss Burke was the god of elocution teachers. If you were in the Father Matthew Fesh and you were doing um, a, you know, a solo bit and you were up against one of Miss Burke's pupils, you figured you were goosed before you started. Well, she, I think, did a good job on me and (laughs) and my siblings who were exposed to her. The reason Terry is here is not to talk about politics or anything else, but to talk about Caution to the Wind, which is the title of her memoir. So I'll say a formal good morning to you, Terry. Good morning, sir. Um, The first thing that uh, I want to ask you about is who are the prones? There aren't many prones around. (laughs) No, and half of them don't speak to the other half. Um, The (laughs) Van Proens were Huguenots who... uh, were refugees from Europe, came to Ireland in order not to be forced to be Catholic and then voluntarily became Catholic, which we (laughs) never understood. And uh, they were my father's family and they were in the Liberties. And um, then my father, who he he had an interesting take on human relations, um, fought with most of his family. And so I have never met uh, any of the other prones. And there are only two branches of the family. There's only two, not speaking. There's something quite <laughs> Irish about that, isn't there? Now, um, your childhood was pretty idyllic, wasn't it? Besides falling off a tricycle at a very early age and, and uh, losing some of your ability to speak. I had to talk about elocution. I had to be sent to elocution lessons because of this. I, it was on my fourth birthday. And When I went to elocution lessons, one of the things we had to do was learn a poem. And that was fine. And then suddenly I found myself with a whole load of other students, maybe seven years of age, in the fesh saying a poem. And I made a complete cobbler's of it because you're supposed to go out, bow to the adjudicator. I forgot all that. But then you got recalled if you were any good. And I got recalled and the, the, you said a different poem, which was about a postman. Bring me a letter do tomorrow at the garden gate. I will wait for you. And uh, I did my, th- and again, I didn't bow to the adjudicator. And at the end of it, I won first prize. My goodness. And it was just, and my mother, like a shot, had me across the river to the Irish press, the newspaper, and my picture was in the newspaper the next day. And, and so began a career of notoriety. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it certainly began there. There are so many things. Your childhood account is quite detailed, but one of the things that kind of informs your later life is um, your sister Hillary uh, chatting with Grandad and uh, getting on famously with them and, you know, the two of them having a terrific interchange and you, on the other hand, being ignored. Because you kept talking about yourself, whereas Hillary was a good listener. It was fascinating to watch at six or seven and realise, oh, this is why my grandfather prefers Hillary to me. And it wasn't an issue of jealousy or envy or any of that. It was just, 
oh, this is how it works. You should shut up talking about yourself and ask him about himself. And that stuck with me right throughout life. And it it was very useful when I began to train people in communication. Because to this day, Pat, the myth about communication is you need to be a great presenter. You need to have charisma. You need to talk in a punchy way, whatever the hell that means. Whereas the very first communication skill is shutting up, is listening. Sorry, I just wandered off there. (laughs) (laughs) And being curious about other people. It is the ultimate qualification for your Curiosity is the key. Um, Now, your, your, I suppose, public career, you joined the Abbey by lying. I did. I lied a lot. Um, You had to be 16 before you could get into the School of Acting. And as I always did, I wore very high heels and let on to be 16. And I got in. And then suddenly I was, I was doing the really exciting stuff that looking back wasn't exciting at all, like prompting. You'd be sitting in the wings of a production. And I remember one particular one where I had the script on my lap, tiny little light over, and you're watching out for if the actor on stage dries up suddenly and then you hiss the line at them. And I'm watching an actor named Joan O'Hara, who was a fabulous actor, and she's playing in a god-awful play called Dervagilla. This by is Sebastian Barry's mum. Exactly. And she was in Fair City. Yes. Yeah. She was a genius and one of the wittiest women alive when she was alive. But I'm watching her and I'm fascinated as as a 14-year-old because she has tears, real tears coming down her cheeks. And I'm thinking, will I ever be able to produce real tears on demand? And another actor, a man named Ray McAnally, came up behind me, saw what I was doing and he took my shoulders and he turned me slightly so that I was looking at the audience. And he leaned down and he whispered, are they crying? And I suddenly realised, no, they weren't. They were admiring, like I was, the capacity that she had to produce tears, but it moved them not. And that was a hell of a lesson because it said, no, no, it's not about what you can do. It's the feeling you can evoke in the other person. That's great acting and it's also great communication. If you can fake sincerity, you got it back. No, and I'm going to fight with you, Pat Kent, because <laughs> when you say that, I have actually spent 60 years of my life trying to get people to understand that it's not about faking tricks or fakery. It's about being interesting to somebody else because you've thought about the somebody else. It's about talking in an understandable way instead of trying to be posh. And it's memorable because you're you're able to tell stories and paint pictures. And uh, we'll fast forward to when you were actually helping priests uh, to give good sermons because most people have experience of a lot of boring stuff droning on and people sit there and listen acquiescently because they have to but they do tend to wander off mentally and kind of say, is he not finished yet? So, what was your advice? Well, um, I sat in on a session that Bunny was doing, first of all, and this young priest said that he had worked in, in Manhattan for a year and he had seen murder, rape and pillage. 
And Bunny said, oh, okay, how did you witness a murder? And he said, well, maybe not actually a murder. And Bunny said, but a rape? And he said, well, not actually. And Bunny said, oh, but there was pillage. (laughs) And the man, God love him, said um, that he had witnessed a bicycle being stolen. And it was so sad for him because he was trying to be interesting. There was a kind of an innocence about some of the men that I dealt with. One of them at some stage started a sermon by saying, last Tuesday, I was driving to Clanmel and I got a bit bored, so I picked up a young man. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, God, none of them have realised how awful this is. How am I going to raise it with them? And eventually I said, look, can I tell you a story? And they all said yes. I said, look. I was interviewing on RTE Radio a few weeks ago, a man from St. Audience Cathedral. You know St. Audience with the mummies? Grand. And um, he was the organist from St. Audience. And I said to him, um, uh, was he as good with his organ as he used to be? Uh, Was he capable of many variations with his organ as he used to have? And when people came into the cathedral, were they able to freely handle his organ or were they restrained behind a red rope? And of course, I looked out to see the control room and see was I being told to finish up. And there seemed to be nobody in in the control room. Apparently, this was because they were all lying on the floor in stitches at the dirt of all this. And I had to explain that sometimes you can be very dirty while you're being very innocent. And claiming to have picked up a young man because of boredom was not a good place to start a sermon. Now, um, your career, I mean, so many things you did uh, in terms of broadcasting. I remember you were a teen prodigy on, uh, what was it called? Teen Talk. Teen Talk. Uh, And then, of course, subsequently you went to work for for Gay uh, on the Gay Burn Show. Were you responsible for Exira and Delira? Was that one of your catchphrases? Oh, I would love to be able to say yes, but no. But I would put it in scripts for gay. I really would. And that was the other thing about scripting for gay. You could you could put in breakdown in tears at this point. And he would and break he would. down. Sometimes I'd be in the car and I'd be thinking, that's a really interesting item. And then I'd realise, of course, it's interesting, you idiot. You wrote it. But he would, you know, he would come in an hour ahead of broadcast time. He would sit down with the scripts and he would work on so that any of the risky stuff that I would put in, he would have time to work out and to own before he went on air. Yeah. He also made a point of reading all the books that he featured. And you have a quotation from Joe Duffy about that, where someone took him to task. Yeah, for you, not being well read. Ulick O'Connor, who was just, I will not use the word that I should use about Ulick O'Connor. I was on the Late Late Show on a panel with Ulick O'Connor. And for some reason, I didn't know that he did this. Right throughout the programme, he hissed awful things in a whisper at me. I mean, really awful things. And I was maybe 19 or 20 at the time. So I, and I was a fairly innocent Remind me to tell you about the the plant in a second. But I was a fairly innocent 20-year-old and I didn't have the wit to say to the audience and gay, folks, this guy is doing this all the time to me and it's distracting me. I got through the programme and at the end, Tom, my husband, who had been 
way up at the back, came down and said, Tess, what's wrong with you? And I said, he was saying this and this and this to me. And Tom, without thinking, reached straight out, took Ulick O'Connor by the lapels of his jacket with such force that the jacket split down the back. And, of course, suddenly Ulick O'Connor is saying, gay, gay, because gay is in charge. Now, don't forget, Ulick would have everyone know that he was a champion boxer in his youth. Exactly. But it didn't deter Tom from assaulting him. Um, And uh, they were put, we were put in two separate rooms and Gay did his forensic thing of what exactly happened and what, and all of that. And at the end of it, as we got into the car, Tom said, Gay says that's the last time Eulick O'Connor will be on the Late Late Show. And it was the last time. Mm. By the way, can I tell you about my plant? Uh, and and Mom, I just want to mention Eulick. Um, Eulick had some book out uh, a few years before he died and he approached The Late Late Show when I was presenting it. And we turned him down because it didn't seem to us something that we wanted to do that particular week. And I bumped into Eulick and Dawkey and he told me I'd ruined his life and verbally attacked me in the middle of the street. And... Uh, This is interesting because the same thing happened with me when I had a bad car crash and there was one of these court cases for insurance and stuff and it was in the paper just because I was reasonably well known. He sent me a letter wishing me bad luck in the court case. Now, this was three or four years after the Late Late Show thing and wishing me that I, I wouldn't succeed in the court case. And I thought, gosh, what a poisonous person he was. Yeah. Uh, some deep unhappiness there that maybe we cannot plumb. You wanted to talk about the plant. I did. Because one of the great sources of pride to me was that at 21, I had a secretary, back when people had secretaries. And her name was Colette Cullen. And she solved the chaos of my life on a daily basis in the Institute of Public Administration. And she was just so wonderfully calm and good-humoured that I was startled this day when she suddenly arrived into my office, closed the door behind her, grabbed the potted plant off my desk, opened the window, flecked the potted plant out, closed the window again, and turned round and put her index finger in front of her mouth. And I'm looking at her, this makes no sense, whatever... And at that moment, the door opens and Jim O'Donnell, who is my boss, comes in and says, Terry, I just wanted you to meet Dinny Mullins, who is the head of the drug squad <laughs> and in Angar the Shirkana. And I invited Dinny and Colette got coffee and tea and greatest chat. And after about an hour, he left and that was grand. And I said to Colette, what the hell was that about? And she said, you're so innocent that the rest of the girls at Christmas thought it'd be gas to give you a potted marijuana plant because you wouldn't know what it was. And so I had had a marijuana plant on my desk on the morning that the head of the drug squad arrived. <laughs> now, the heart of this book, uh, Terry, is your love story with Tom, the, the late Tom Savage, um, who was a priest when you met him. He proposed to you while still a priest and he'd never kissed you or touched you or any truck with you in that way at all. What an extraordinary thing to happen. And it was it was weird because I know that a lot of people at the time, particularly Tom's family, believed that in some way I had seduced him. But there was no seduction. There was no contact. There was no nothing. Um, there was just he had decided that he was leaving the priesthood for very good reasons, unconnected with me. And... 
the first day that he saw me in the old Catholic communication centre, he decided, I love this woman. Took me much longer, at least five weeks. And um, (laughs) then he asked me to marry him. And then all hell broke loose because... He had to be laicized. He had to be laicized. And we figured that might take as long as six months. And after two and a half years... Tom thought, there's something fishy going on here. And he rang the Vatican. He had a pal in the Vatican. And he said, would you ever find out where my application for reduction to the lay state actually is? And the friend rang back in an hour and said, well, that was easy, Tom. It's not here. It never was here. Conway, the cardinal, never sent it on. And Tom put down the phone, explained that to me, picked up his car keys and disappeared. He just got into his car. He drove to Araceli, where the Cardinal lived in Armagh, barged past receptionist, priest, everything, into Conway's office and said, you never sent my application for laicization onto the Vatican. And Conway smiled at him and said, you're correct. And Tom said, why? And Conway told him that he thought Tom would get over it and he wanted Tom to be his successor as Archbishop of Armagh. And Tom yelled at him and said that he had no right to play with people's lives in that way and that even in terms of canon law, he was way offside and that if Conway didn't take action right quick, Tom would go public with it. And a week later, Tom's pal in the Vatican rang and said, <laughs> don't know what you did, but it's coming through. It's coming through. And six weeks later we were allowed to get married and we got married very publicly. Um, uh, Brian Darcy was on the altar. Jerry Reynolds, the redemptress who was involved in the peace process. Both of them asked to be on the altar. Uh, not everyone was pleased. No, not everyone was pleased. But <laughs> There were consequences. There were people who had got over it. Um, like my father, who six weeks before the wedding did ask if he could give me away and apologise to us. But the fact that I was marrying an ex-priest meant that, for example, when I got fired in RTE for being a woman um, and I went to the trade union, they said, well, with who you're marrying, I'm not sure it would be a good fight to fight. Dear, yeah. oh dear. The, the book is full of anecdote and um, social history in truth. There's one little thing about uh, Bishop Casey arrives at the communications uh, centre and Tom has no time for him. And it's not because of any suspicion about shenanigans with Annie Murphy or anything like that. There is another reason behind it. What was that? Tom said he was not going to go in and greet Casey and that Casey would be very glad of that. And I said, sorry. And he said that Eamon Casey, Father Eamon Casey, had stolen Tom's research. At the time, there was a wave of homelessness comparable to now, mainly in London. Do you remember a television programme called Cathy Come Home? Yeah. And Tom was over in London researching this because he was the first Catholic priest ever to get a degree in sociology from Queen's University Belfast and he was doing his thesis stuff and somebody said to him that there was this priest visiting uh, Father Eamon Casey. Could Tom talk to him? Tom did. Tom handed over his uh, documents 
And about three weeks later, he found himself looking at a phenomenon called Father Raymond Casey, expert in housing. And all of his stuff, all of Tom's research had been just lifted and used by a man who knew that Tom was never going to protest. My goodness. Tom, of course, passed prematurely and I knew Tom uh, as chairman of the authority as well as in other uh, facets of his life, interviewed him many times, used to sit with him having lunch in the canteen. As chairman, you see, not a lot of people wanted to sit beside him, but I had been on the authority, so I felt very comfortable with Tom. And he was he was great to talk to. He's a, a font of wisdom. But I suppose uh, at the heart of this is the, the grieving that you still do for Tom. And you remark that you didn't realise how physical your grieving could be. I, I never realised that it's, it's like a pain, that it's like a chest pain. And... It's funny, a few years before he died, I said to Tom, listen, if I die first, do you know the thing that says that you should have a second relationship and I should be very pleased that you're happy? Well, that doesn't apply. (laughs) You have a second relationship, I'm going to haunt you. And he thought about that for a while and then he said, Tess, you know something you can shag off? Um, You are not going to rule me from the grave if you do pop your clogs first. And then there was a small pause and then he said... I'm not sure that, though, I would have the energy for a second go round. And I thought, well, OK, if I die first. And then Tom died first. And the 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 sense that at some stage it would ease and life would become normal, it doesn't become normal. You just have to move on, but without the most interesting person in your life. Well, the book is absolutely fabulous. Caution to the wind. It has the best closing line of any book that I've read. And you remember that little. Let people find it, buy it, enjoy it, uh, because I think they they will very much do so. It's called Caution uh, to the Wind. It's published by Red Stripe Press and its author, Terry Prone. Thank you very much for joining us in studio today. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.